we are in the book of Haggai. And uh, here we go. Yes, thank you. And we've been talking about Haggai. It's just, just uh, and you know, I make that joke. I'm just, I know it's saying it's that little part of your Bible, the, the pages are all absolutely white because you've never gone there before. And it's towards the end of the Old Testament. And Haggai is just two chapters. And we have uh, been going through this the last three weeks. Today's the final one. It's the final part of the second chapter as, uh, as we look at this book. And God has um, just really dealt with me on this. It's been very interesting going through this and learning more. So I'm going to read to you verses 20 through 23. This is what we're going to look at today. The word of the Lord came to Haggai on a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tells the rubble governor of Judah that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and riders will fall each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. So, just a brief review. We talked the first week about the first part, about the first chapter. We talked about kingdom priority, where God told them, he said, I've set you free from captivity. The children of Israel were in captivity um, um, in Babylonia and Assyria, that, and they just all kept changing hands, but they, they were all in that same place. They, they were in captivity. God told them, he promised them when they were getting ready to be taken captive. He said, look, this is happening because you've left me. You've left the protections that I offer. You've gone your own way. You've trusted, you've trusted Egypt to protect you against the Assyrians, and that was a wrong choice, and you're going to be conquered. You're going to go into captivity because of this, because you made all these wrong choices and you've worshipped other gods. And uh, just so you know, one of the things I was studying about this, they were saying what, what had happened was the children of Israel had erected altars to other gods in the temple. In various spots in the temple, there would be, and, and they, they were worshipping other gods in the temple. And God was like, this is an abomination to me. You're, this is, you, you just can't do this. So they were taken captive just as he promised, but he also promised them before they were taken captive, I will get you out of there. I will free you. And he did. So now where are they at? They're back in the land. This was the first chapter. He says, I've set you free from captivity, not for you to build your own kingdom, but for you to build my kingdom. And so we entitled that kingdom priority. He tells her, I don't want you to spend all your time, all your money, everything, on you. So recalibrate your heart. See the joy that comes from building my kingdom. See the joy that comes when my name is lifted up. Guard against kingdom drift, I called it. So that was, that was the first one. The second one was called kingdom perspective. And he was telling them, don't get stuck looking back and comparing. Don't get discouraged. Don't let circumstances make you want to stop doing God's work. Look forward to what God's going to do. See everything with new eyes. And for even for us, he's saying the same thing to us. See everything with new eyes. School, see it with new eyes. Work, see it with new eyes. Family, see it with new eyes. Friends, see it with new eyes. Have a new focus. Realize what the potential for God accomplishing something in other people's lives when you begin to look outward and not inward. In chapter one, in the beginning of that chapter, they just kept looking inward. What will make me comfortable? Oh no, things are tough. What will make me more, what will make, me, make it easier for me? And he says, stop looking inward. Start looking outward. Start looking at what I can do. Look carefully at how you walk. We looked at a verse from the New Testament. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So don't be foolish. 
but understand what the Lord's will is. So that was kingdom perspective. The third one was kingdom purity. And this was that idea of that don't go through the motions. Just going through the motions. They were going through the motions with little meaning. And this is where we have to work at this because the Christian life many times is counterintuitive. It, it, it tells us that if we pursue life, we end up not getting it. But it tells us if we pursue Jesus, we end up finding the very life we want. It comes through Jesus. If we focus our life on making our life better, what I want, comfortable, all the things I want, he says, you'll always be grasping, 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 never quite get. You'll get little glimpses of happiness and then it'll fade away and you'll wonder where it went and you'll wonder why. But he says, if you pursue me, Jesus tells us, then you find what life is. And, and, and Haggai is saying the same thing. God is saying the same thing way back then. Get your heart right. And then the actions for living for God and serving God will come more naturally. See that his salvation is by grace and we're supposed to walk by grace. And then when you understand that grace, you will serve. A while back, my wife and I went, we, we've been living in Virginia for a long time, 40 years, whatever, 40-something um, years. And we went for the first time to Crabtree Falls. I don't know why I didn't go sooner. It was such a great time. It was, it was beautiful. It was, one, you know, all these, all these falls, sometimes cascading down, you know, and then there'd be steps of cascades, and then there'd be a waterfall. And what, what was interesting to me was the water is always moving. It's always going downhill, always. But at some points, say it's a waterfall, it falls down into a pool, and the pool can be very calm, and it looks like the water's not moving at all. But it is. It's spilling over on the other side, maybe 50 yards down, whatever it is, and it's spilling over, and it keeps moving. And this is so much like, I just was thinking about this. This is like the Christian life. God says, when you begin to understand what the grace is in your life, when you begin to understand what I've done for you, when you begin to understand who you are in me, serving begins to come, and it begins to come naturally, like water going downhill. And sometimes there will be great leaps and, and incredible, and sometimes it will seem like nothing's happening, but it is happening. God is always working. Even when you feel like he's not working, he is working. And then suddenly there's another leap. Or there's a, there's maybe it's a, just a gentle stream going to another pool and then a big leap. It, it varies. And the problem is we want the leaps. That's what we want. I mean, when we were hiking up, you know, you see this giant pool go, yeah, gun, okay. And then you see a leap. Oh, look at that. It's beautiful. You know, we like that. We like the leaps. But the Christian life is all of those. And when we see his grace in our life and we see our new identity, we start serving not to get something. We start serving because of what has been given to us. So today, we're on the third one, we're fourth one. We're talking about kingdom purity. It's just four verses. It's, it's a short little part of this book. But again, it's another time where God makes a pronouncement. In all these other pronouncements, he's been talking to groups of people. This pronouncement is to one person. One person, Zerubbabel, who is the governor of Judah. Now remember, they're still under the authority of a foreign power, so he can't be king, he's governor. That's what's going on there. And so I want you to see, oh, I forgot to show you. There's a picture of Crabtree Falls. Oops. Yeah, Ooh, great. <laughs> Someone's mocking me, I can feel it. All right, so number one, 
Hold loosely to the perishable things of this life. The first thing, I think this is important, God is trying to tell him is, I want you to understand that there are perishable things. There are the things that will pass away. Hold loosely onto those things. Because he says, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the second time on the 24th day of the month, tells Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. What is he talking about there? Well, Hebrews talks about this. This is what's great. In the book of Hebrews, the writer talks about this and tells us about what that shaking is. And he says, at that time, when the shaking, he says, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. That's a quote from Haggai. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken remains. And he, he finishes up that, I don't have it there. Therefore, we are, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, we, we have access to the unshakable things, to the unshakable things. Since we have access to that kingdom, let us be thankful and so worship the God, worship God acceptably with reverence and offer our God as a consuming fire. What is he telling them? He's saying, look, you're in a tough time. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't throw in the towel because you're in the midst of building something that's unshakable. And the shakable things are going to pass away. And in, he, in the book of Hebrews, just much like here in Haggai, the Christians, the followers of God are struggling. They're dealing with persecution. They're dealing with difficulties. Let me just tell you a little bit about the difficulties that first century Christians went through. Just so we can understand, we tend to, we tend to lose sight of, you know, we think occasionally some of them died and that was, you know, really big. But let me just tell you the day-to-day difficulties. Let's suppose you have a garden. Let's say maybe you're a farmer. So you have a, you have a crop and you're bringing a wagon full of your goods to sell in, in the town. And we have some information on this about how this worked in the town of Ephesus, but it would work very similar in all Roman towns and cities, big and small. So you'd roll in and there'd be the agora, the market, and there would be a market master, a man who's in charge of the market. And you'd roll in and he would have his inspector go over your goods to make sure your goods are worthy of the market of Ephesus. And if your goods are worthy, the master says, yes, these are great, you know, gourds or whatever, corn or whatever. You know, this is great. It's, it's worth selling in our market. The master would say, great, you are welcome to our market. Today, we're honoring the god Zeus. So for half a denarii, you can take a pinch of this incense and worship Zeus, and then you can go sell. And the Christian says, well, I don't worship Zeus. What? You don't worship Zeus? What are you, crazy? I said, well, I, I worship God. I worship Yahweh. Oh, well, we'll we, if, you, if, you, if enough of you want to, we'll have a day where we all put, put a pinch of incense to Yahweh. We can include him. We have hundreds of gods. It's no worry. You say, no, you don't understand. He's the only God. No, now you're crazy, dude. He's not the only God. We got a bunch. Look at all the statues. Now, pinch, pinch of incense, give me half a denarii, and get in the, you, I can't do it. As a Christian, I can't do that. Turn around and take your goods. You can't sell them in Ephesus. Right? And so what would happen is the Christians would sell their goods on the outskirts of town, but everyone would suspect that those goods didn't pass the inspection. And so they wouldn't pay the prices that they should pay for those goods. So it cost Christians, just for being Christians, financially, all the time. 
It cost them that. In the political arena, we know from Ephesus that every time the city council, which was about 30 uh, people, at the start, pinch of incense to whoever the God was for that weekly meeting. And if you wouldn't do it, you're out. You're out, of, you're out, of, out economically. You're out in, in terms of power. You can't be in a guild. Everybody has guilds. Sailors have guilds. Miners have guilds. Farmers have guild, guilds. Everyone has a guild. And a guild has a God. And you have to worship that God to be in that guild, to get the benefits of that guild. And you couldn't join a guild, which meant everything you did would be on a lower level economically. Again, the economics. Once a year in every Roman town or city, there'd be a great procession in honor of Caesar. And people would line up at the procession and they'd throw sometimes out gifts in honor of Caesar. And everyone had to say, Caesar is the God above gods. Caesar is Lord of all. And if you wouldn't say it, you were liable for some sort of punishment. We know in Asia, in, in uh, East Asia, what would be Turkey, Asia Minor, what would be Turkey? Pliny the Younger was the man who was in charge for a while. Now, what Christians oftentimes would do is they know it's the day of Caesar's procession and you just lay low. You stay in your home. You don't come out. Don't draw attention to yourself because it could be a problem. But some people enforced it. Pliny the Younger enforced it. Pliny the Younger sent soldiers from house to house and dragged people out. Say it. Say it. And he killed the ones who wouldn't. We have a, we have a letter from him to Caesar saying, I'm doing this for you. I've gotten these people and I'm going to kill them all because they won't. They won't confess that Caesar is Lord. They won't confess that Caesar is God. I've been torturing two of them to find out what it is about their, about their particular sect, he called it. You know, Why are they this way? And he says, it's really strange because they just say they want to be law-abiding citizens. They don't want to cause any problems. They just want to live. They want to worship their God in peace. But because, because they won't worship you, Caesar, they don't bring peace and they deserve death. And many Christians died for that. Now, that didn't happen everywhere. It didn't happen all the time. It was, it was spotty. It wasn't like Christians were being killed thousands every day or anything like that. But what happened was it was all up to the governor of the area as to how much he would enforce that. But at the minimum, Christians had to get out of town or be, you know, lay low or whatever once a year because of this great procession and this command to say Caesar is God, Right? And in the book of Hebrews, the writer is saying, don't give up, don't give in to discouragement. The day is coming when God will set all things right. Let me, let me just give you a little side thing too. I know some people say that Christians are struggling in our country. We're not struggling like that. We're not struggling. We're not experiencing persecution to that degree. Christians aren't being crucified in the city square. You know, this is, this, and, and here's what, this is what amazes me. Christianity was exploding in that. It was exploding. People were saying, I want to be a Christian. I want to live like those Christians. What an incredible thing. In the midst of all of that, and, and I want to tell you, there was other things like 
the, the, the Agora, like the market. There were other things like that, all kinds of little things that, that all, because in that day it all revolved around worshiping, burning incense to specific gods on specific days. Everything revolved around that. And Christians said, I can't do that, I can't do that. And they paid for it in small ways and in big ways, but they always paid for it in some way. And it was exploding at that time. It was overwhelming the world at that time. It's just an amazing thing. And so these are the things he says, hold on loosely to these things, worrying about finances, worrying about power, worrying about things that I have, worrying about all these different things. Hold on loosely to those things because they're not eternal. He says, I want you to think about what the eternal things are. I'm building a kingdom for eternity. So live accordingly. Deal with those things that would take you away from focusing with God. What are those things called in the Bible? Idols. That's what the Bible would call those types of things. Things that grab your focus. Anything that comes between me and God. Anything that can become greater than God in my life. Anything that I trust before God becomes an idol. And I want to talk about that for a minute because I think this is important for us to think about. Because I'm not asking you if we have an idol problem. We do have an idol problem. That's a given. Here's the question. What's the biggest idol in my life or in your life? Because we all have them. So because you asked me that question, I thought I'd answer it. I got some ideas for you to ponder and some things for you to think about. All right? And this is, um, this is an IQ test. It's not an intelligence quotient test. It's an idolatry quotient, idolatry quotient test. So we're going to look at some potential idols. Here they are. I just listed them here. Just some things. This is very general. You can think about it. Money. Money is, is uh, Paul tells us in Colossians that money can become an idol in our life because money always wants to be more money, all right? Success, that's an idol. It can become something that dominates our life. And we're talking about things that oftentimes can take, take precedent over God in our life. Money can take precedence over God's success. Um, intelligence, being smart, being, feeling like everyone knows or wanting people to know you're smart. You ever hear anybody brag about their degrees or their education or their brains or how much they know? It becomes an idol. Attractiveness. We can spend a lot of our money on this and sometimes even go through physical pain for this. The fifth one here I have is relationship. It can become a kind of, if I place too much on one person, what happens? That person can become more important to me than God. And I've placed them on a pedestal that, they can, pedestal that they can never live up to. You think about that. When you, when you put someone ahead of God, you've put them in a position they are destined to fail at. And you're only hurting them, not helping them. There's a uh, book was written about 20 years ago by a sociologist named Cynthia Heimel. And the book is, If You Can't Live Without Me, Why Aren't You Dead Yet? I love that. <laughs> to me, that's a country western song, right? Right? Yang can't live without me. How come you ain't dead yet? Just me and my dog and my pickup truck, right? So, so it's it's that thing we can, they, in the Bible. It's called idolatry because it life can become a train wreck when we do that to a person in a relationship. The next one is pleasure. It is possible for a human life to be oriented totally around self-gratification, 
or getting a buzz, self-medication, escaping all the negative feelings in our life, creating an addiction in our life. The Bible calls that idolatry. Here's an interesting one. I see you see it up there. Church. Church can be, because if, you, if you're coming to church just for your reputation of being spiritual, just to get a feel-good moment about yourself, just to make yourself think you're a better, better because of it, you're coming for the wrong reasons, right? Because, because the Bible talks about us in a very clear way. The Bible, and I love this. The Bible lifts us up and it tears us down at the same time, right? It lifts us up. It says, you are so special to God. God loves you so much. And it lifts us up that way. And the Bible also says, you are a sinner, You are a mess. You can't do anything on your own. Takes you down. The Bible lifts us up and takes us down both at the same time. And if you use church as a way of getting something, I remember one time I was talking to a guy, he was an insurance salesman. And and he said, oh, I go go to church too. You know, I'm a Christian and and I go to to church too. I said, oh, that's great. What church do you go to? And and so he told me it was a big, big, big church. And I said, oh, what is it you like about it? He goes, oh, well, my boss told me to go there because there's so many contacts. I said, oh, that's why you go there? I'm like, dude, I'm not buying any insurance from you. <laughs> you lame-o, I'm so mad. <laughs> you know, but, but that's, that's, people can use church for that. And then work. People can trash their lives working at that altar. So now we look at those. Eh, okay, Bob, let's make it a little personal. Here we go. You ready? Which of these do you find yourself thinking about the most? All right? A little self-examination. When we talk about those things, what are you thinking about the most most of the time? Which, what occupies your, your, your mind the most? What do you daydream about? Another thought, which one of those do you fear losing? Which one of those would you go, I don't know if life would be worth living without that? Which one tempts you to feel that way? Which one of these idols gives you a sense of identity? It makes you feel like I'm somebody because of this. You know, it's that classic thing we, we hear about sometimes in the news where some big politician pu- gets pulled over and he looks at the police, the policeman or the policewoman and says, do you know who I am? There we go. There we go. That's what that is. That's somebody saying, I am somebody because of this. Which of these do I look the most to? Which makes me feel most secure? Like I'll get a sense of security from it. Which of these eight do I most want to be known for? If you look at these also, what makes me the happiest when I have lots of it and what makes me the saddest when it's threatened? Which one of these would other people who know me well say I likely struggle with? And of these eight, which one do my efforts, my time and my effort revolve around the most? Which one do I sacrifice the most for? God is saying to Zerubbabel, there are things that will pass away. They are not worth investing your life in. They are not worth owning you. They're not worth it because they will pass away. There's something that won't pass away. That's worth it. That's worth it. So hold loosely to those perishable things. And Frank, it firmly grasp the most important things. And verse 22 could be in both of these, but I just stuck it here so it was more balanced. It says, um, 
I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. All right, so God's saying, okay, I want you to know, here's some allusions. First of all, the first verse there, 22, is allusions to past events. He talks about horses and riders falling. That's, he's talking about, he's talking about uh, Egypt as they left Egypt and went through the Red Sea. He's talking about when soldiers kill each other, brothers kill their brothers. He's talking about Sennacherib. He's reminding him, Sennacherib of Assyria, when he, um, when he invaded Israel, he, he took everything and he made a giant, giant, they call it a frieze, but it's like a mural, a wall mural. And it, and it was 80 feet high and it covered all four sides of a room way bigger than this. Parts of it are in the British Museum. I've seen it in the British Museum in, uh, in Britain. Duh, okay. George Washington's white horse, right? Uh, and so, and, and he details how he conquered and how many people he took captive. And then it comes to Jerusalem. And he talks about how he surrounded Jerusalem and him Jerusalem in. And then he says, and then I went home. Every time he says, I conquered, I got these people, I got this money, I came to Jerusalem, and then I went home. Why? Well, the Bible tells us why. A plague broke out, and, 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 and they, people, it went crazy. It was killing people, and even some of them killed their own, each other in their madness, and they had to leave. Now, we have another, we have another parchment that tells us also about this, that talks about how this, something very similar, this parchment just says that, that um, mice came in and ate the leather off the sword handles and ate the, and, and ate the bowstrings off their bows, and, and they, they were attacked and they were decimated and they ran home. And so, you know, I, I tend to trust the Bible more than some parchment that was found in Egypt, but still, it, it's, it's recording something that happened. And Sennacherib is recording it, because when you write, you know, when you are the guy who writes it, you always make yourself look good, right? And he says, I left, I left Hezekiah hemmed in like a bird in a cage, and then I went home, right? So he's reminding them, these are times when I shook things. I shook things. And then we get to verse 23. And I want to tell you, verse 23 opens so many deep, dark rabbit holes that even I haven't gone through all of them yet. And I am like the rabbit hole king. I love rabbit holes. But this is one thing, okay, this is one thing. I don't like to talk bad about people. And I don't, I very rarely talk bad about other religions or people or other, other things like that. But I do sometimes get frustrated with fellow pastors. I feel like since I'm a pastor, I can talk about bad about pastors, okay? And they don't listen to me. They're doing their own thing, right? But I've read a number of their books on Haggai. I've listened to tons of them on Haggai, and they all dodge this verse. They all dodge this verse. There's something huge in this verse, and you may not see it at first, but, but this is something that people who do not believe in God point to and say an absolute contradiction in the Bible. All right? So here we go. All right, there's all this... Um, Messianic imagery that's going on here. There's this sign of God's blessing that leads to the Messiah with the signet. This is important. And a, a signet ring, I don't know if you, you've heard of those things, right? It's a signet ring, and, and sometimes kings would take a message, an important message, only for a certain person to see, and they'd put wax on it, and they'd press their ring in the wax to seal it. That means anybody who opens this who is not the person it's intended for is liable for death, right? That's a signet ring, a ring of power, 
a ring of authority, the ring saying, this is the person in charge. And he says, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you, um, Zerubbabel. Now, here's where the problem is. The last king of Judah was a very evil king named Jehoiachin. He had, he had, and the, they do this all the time, different names. Sometimes the same person can have two or three, four or five different names. Jehoiachin was called also uh, Jeconiah. He was also called Kaniah. All right, that's just information for you. But in Jeremiah 22, God says to Jeho- Jehoiachin, who is in the line of David through Solomon, one of the kings of Israel, he says to him, you are so wicked. You are so evil. I've had it. You, as a signet ring, are now destroyed. And your children will have no children. Your line is over. And to a Jew, that is the ultimate punishment. Your line ends. Your line ends. He says, Jehoiachin, you and your kids will be dragged away in captivity. You are crushed as a signet ring. You are no more. You are no more. And your children, your five sons, they will not have children. Now, this is what happened historically. They came in, they invaded, they conquered, they grabbed Jehoiachin and his five sons, and they dragged them into captivity. And the five sons became eunuchs, not of their own choice. That's the most delicate way I can say that. If any kids here don't know what I'm talking about, ask your parents afterwards, please. Don't ask me. So, his line ended. His, line, his five sons had no sons. And yet, in the genealogy in the book of Matthew, it says Jehoiachin had a son named Shealtiel, which is the man we've heard some about here. And his son is Zerubbabel. What? Houston, we have a problem, right? This, this sounds like a direct contradiction. Do you, <laughs> and you're going right now, you're going, but you're going to tell us it's not. I know you are. Yes, yes. So what's happening here? And, uh, and, and, and it's very interesting how the Bible tells us history and that history is reinforced. There's this thing called the Babylonian tablets and it talks about what happened to Jehoiachin and his five sons. That's how we know what happened to his five sons, right? But Matthew says, hey, here, if you, if you look, well, I'll bring it right back for you. The Lord came, uh, no, that's not the right one. Uh, it's in, in earlier in chapter two, it tells us the Lord came to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. So we know Shealtiel is called Zerubbabel's father. Matthew tells us that Shealtiel is the son of, of Jehoiachin, the man whose line ended and had no children. How can this be? Okay, this is the kind of thing that happens a lot in those days, all right? In those days, people died young. So what happens sometimes? Important people would adopt people to continue their line. So that person is not their blood son, but their adopted son. Also in that time, there was two things in, 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 uh, uh, going on then that helped with that. Also, there's a thing called the Leverite marriage. And that was, and you, you may have heard of this, if there's, if there's four or five sons and, and they get married and one son dies young and his wife, has not, they have not had any children, no boys to continue the family name, all right? Then what would happen? She would go to the next son and he would hopefully impregnate her. She would have a child and that child would have two fathers. He would be called the son 
of the man who, who was his blood father, and he would be called the son of the man who married, first married his wife, to continue that line. And because families were fairly large, but people died young a lot, this was real common. There's a num number of, of parchments that list people that have two fathers. There's a number of times in the Bible where this, we can see spots where a person is told, and this is one of those instances. Um, Jehoiachin adopted Shealtiel to be his son. So he's his son legally, but the bloodline has not ended. Shealtiel had a brother named Padiah, who is listed in another place in the Bible as the father of Zerubbabel. And what happened was Padiah died young, and Shealtiel performed the Levite marriage, uh, um, whatever, it's not a ceremony, but he did his duty. Man, I'm dancing around this stuff, aren't I? I'm just dancing. Um, and she had a boy named Zerubbabel. So Zerubbabel is listed as having two fathers. In the genealogy in Matthew, Shealtiel's listed as his father. In the genealogy in Luke, Padiah is listed as his father. And it's because there's, there's legal and there's blood. And that's super important for them. That was super important in those days. And so what happened? right? God did cut Jehoiachin's line off, his bloodline, no more. Shealtiel got adopted. Zerubbabel comes into the family through adoption, but not through blood into Jehoiachin's. And so, but that still creates a problem if you think about it. And this is where a lot of people point this out. And the problem is the line of David was broken with Jehoiachin. The line coming from Solomon and God promised David, he promised him, there will be a Messiah who has your blood running through his veins. So what is, how do you figure that out? Well, here's the interesting thing. Shealtel and Padiah, their side of the family, is in the line of David from Nathan. And so God cut the line here because God is so evil, but he said, I am going to continue my promises to David by bringing it around this way and still going down. So that legally, legally, Jesus has legal relationship to David through the adoption up to Solomon, and he has blood relationship to David through Nathan, through the bloodline that came through his mother, through uh, um, uh, through Shealtel and down through that line. And so what ha what's happening here? I, I want you to understand, and this is so, I, I understand. This is like so, Bob, this is so weird, historical, and weird like a soap opera thing, right? But here's the bottom line. God says, I am going to honor my word. I'm going to honor my word to continue the line of David, but I am also going to honor my word that I will punish those. Jehoiachin one of the ones who set up idols in the temple so that the priests who offered sin offerings on the altar could see Baal and Ashtaroth and all these other heathen idols polluting this temple. He said, so I must, I must, I must act on this. So I'm cutting you off. And he cut him off. But he said, but I've got to, I've got to honor David. 
So I'm bringing it in. I'm going to make it work. And he says to Zerubbabel, because here's the thing. So Zerubbabel is the end product of all this, all this days of our lives type thing, you know, just so craziness, craziness. And it would be easy for Zerubbabel to go, I'm not a king. I'm just the governor. I'll never be a king. And God says, hey, Zerubbabel, I want you. I want you. I want you. And so Zerubbabel has two fathers, and the line of, from the kings of Solomon is legally kept because of the adoption, but the bloodline broken by Jehoiachin because of his sin and having no descendants is circumvented by God through Nathan's line. Why? Because God says to Zerubbabel, he says, on that day declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant, I will take you, my servant, which then, as you see, this reflects down through history. The Messiah becomes the servant of God. I'll take you, my servant, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. He said, you're my new signet ring. I destroyed the old one. But now you are the signet ring. You are the power. You are the authority. You are what's coming out of this. For I have chosen you, says the Lord. I choose you. You know, this is a pretty crazy thing when you start to think about it. Because we are, in a sense, much like Zerubbabel. Right? Things have gone totally wrong. The world is screwed up. We've screwed up. God brings us in, adopts us into his family. And what does he say? He says, I choose you. I choose you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, out of the billions of people who are on this earth, God chose you. Yeah, he chose others too. But he chooses you. He wants you. I, I've shared this before, but to me it's such a great illustration because it hurts so much in my heart. Um, as a little kid going out to play ball, just at the ball field, a whole bunch of kids and the two best guys start picking up teams. I choose him, 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 I choose him. There's one left. It's Mosley. That weird old left-hander that doesn't know exactly how to throw right, you know. And the kid who's supposed to choose goes, I don't want him. And the other kid says, you have to. It's your turn to choose. You have to take him. All right, come on. So I come on, and then all of you who have ever done, here's, here's death to a little kid playing ball. Go out in right field. Just go out there. Just going out. No balls get hit out there. Nobody puts it out there. Go out there and try to screw things up. And I just remember walking out of right field, going, man, I hope a ball gets hit to me and I make a diving catch and I come up holding the ball like this and they're all going to clap for me and they're all going to be so excited and then I'm going to have my turn up to bat I'm going to hit a home run. It's going to be awesome. And of course, I didn't hit a home run and I didn't catch a ball. But that sense at that moment of being not chosen. Nobody wants me. These are my friends. <laughs> friends like that, <laughs> Right? And God goes, all right, it's time to pick sides. And God goes, I choose you. I choose you. I want you. I want you. I want you. 
I'm not choosing you because I have to. I'm not choosing you because it's, oh, it's my turn in the choice plan here. I'm choosing you because I want you. He's saying that to Zerubbabel, and he says that to us. I choose you. So in this book, we saw this kingdom priority. And the question we ask with kingdom priority is, how can we put God's plan first? That is, how can we look at everything we do and decide to put God first in it? And when we looked at that that first week, one of the things we were missing is what we do is we think of everything we do and we think, how can this enhance God's, plans for, God's plan for the world? Everything I do, how, how can I change that sum to enhance God's plan for the world? Maybe, maybe I, you know, I, I work in a particular setting. Well, how can I interact with my coworkers that in a way, hopefully, begins to share them glimpses of God and his greatness, right? Maybe I can't do hardly anything. I'm at home a whole lot. What can I do? I can be a prayer. I can be a caller. I can be a writer. I can talk to people. I can love people. I can, I can pray for people. I mean, this is, this is the plug for the back corner. We have a basket with some three-by-five cards, and if you want to write down a prayer request, you just write down a prayer request. You put it in that three-by-five on the card. Put it in that basket. You can sign your name if you want to. You don't have to sign your name at all. And there are people who said, I will pray. And we get that to those people, and they pray confidentially. They don't tell people about it, but they just pray for you. A lot, a lot. That's, that's their service to God. That's their gift and their ministry. So how do we do? take everything that we do and how can it enhance God's plan for this world? That was kingdom priority, kingdom perspective. We talked about that a little bit. But how can we, how can we in the midst of discouragement, how do we deal with discouragement? And what did he tell them? He told them, I want you to be strong. I want you to keep working. Don't quit. Even when you're discouraged, don't quit. I want you to realize something that's very important. I am with you in this. And don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because I'm with you. But I don't know about you, but here's where I struggle in this area. How do I not feel like a hypocrite if I'm doing the right thing, but I really don't want to do it? I don't feel like doing it. I don't want to do it. I'm doing it because I know it's the right thing, but there's no joy in my heart, right? You know how that is? You're like, God, I feel like I should like, really want to do this to do this for you because it's kind of a service for you. But really, I'm kind of grumbling. Ugh, should I just stop doing it or should I continue? And for me, what's happened is I stop and I take stock of how I'm feeling and I say, God, I'm going to do this as an offering to you. Even though I don't feel like it, I want to lift it up to you to your glory. I want to make sure you're my focus in this. That's what he's talking about in kingdom perspective. Kingdom purity, what, what happens when we go through the motions it's so easy to do. In church, it's so easy to do, to come and just go through the motions and sing the songs, get a cup of coffee, have a donut, talk to people, be nice. Yay, yay, God is good. We're all happy. Go home. It's like a little version of Facebook sometimes. So how do we get the meaning back? How do we get the meaning back? Well, in Hebrews 12, he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to him. That brings the meaning back. And then in the kingdom promise, what we just talked about, you are the chosen, you are the chosen one. I choose you. How do we grasp this? If we're to firmly grasp the most important things, and that is the most important things right there, keep in mind who we are. Keep in mind who you are in Christ on the basis of the fact that God chose you. He picked you. 
You're on his team because he wanted you there. And he chose you, why? Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians, because he has things for us to do that will impact people's lives for eternity. And he says, look for those things. Look for those things. All of this, you know, I've been so astounded. All of this out of a two-page book. Just two chapters. And we've plumbed the depths of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We haven't plumbed the depths. That would be an exaggeration. We have really gone deep. <laughs> what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ? On oh, what God? And it starts with that initial moment of saying, I realize I'm a sinner. Jesus, you came for me. You came and lived the life I couldn't live. You died the death that I deserved. You were resurrected from the dead to prove that your words were true and we could trust you. And therefore, I accept you as my savior. I will follow you. It starts there. And then it becomes this long process of God molding you and changing you to become more like his son, Jesus Christ. And then, even as is alluded to in this passage, there will come a day when he will come and we will see him face to face. And we will run to the loving arms of our Father, of our God, of our Savior. Because he longs for us and he chose us for that very moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you have given us these incredible books. And some, Lord, I confess, I neglect. Haggai has astounded me. And Lord, I look forward to seeing more of what you'll tell me in areas that maybe I have neglected. But Lord, we thank you that your spirit prompts us and works in us and empowers us to live the life that we could never live without you. And Lord, as we leave this place, help us to have eyes that see people the way you see people and help us to love people the way you love people. In Jesus' name, amen.